Good morning again. I ask you to turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We'll continue in our series in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, wow, what an already great and glorious day. Didn't the, our student choir do incredible? Thankful for them. Thankful for our choir always. Kevin, Scott, Miss Diane leading all of them. We're thankful for you guys leading us in worship. Uh, full and big and nobody made any bad faces that I saw. So I'm thankful. Um, already being able to talk with the Caskies, thinking through our partnership with South Asia. Already uh, you've heard about our lunch with the staff, big crowd joining us. We'd love to have you, if you're a guest, join with us there. Opportunities this afternoon at 4 p.m. to come out, find information about this, this trip as Taylor's First has this opportunity to serve. So, so much goodness going on in the life of our church. And I'm thankful also that we don't take any of this for granted. This is a gift to us from the Lord to be able to be a part of his ministry. And so is us being able to gather in this room right now to be able to read his word together. And so let's look at God's word and see Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 this morning. Paul, after finishing chapter 1, encouraging them, kind of telling the Philippians about what has happened with him and how he sees it and understands it, to live as Christ, to die as gain, so you live worthy of the gospel. He says in chapter 2 verse 1, so... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this word is good to us. We're thankful for Christ who is Lord, King, ruler of all. We're thankful that our King became one of us and died in our place. We're thankful for the opportunity we have to gather and hear this good and glorious news this morning. And Father, I pray that it's just that. There's, there's some here, maybe God, who needs some really good news in their life. There's some, Father, who, who need to hear this this morning most particularly, most clearly some, Father, may not know of this, and they hear this morning, God, that there is a Savior who has come for them, who died for them, who's been raised and who is now seated, and anyone who calls on his name will find life and salvation. Father, we're thankful for this, and so God, help us as we look to your word now in Jesus' name, amen. I am constantly trying to tell my kids that the 1980s were the best decade, period, Constantly going after it. I, I put it into the sense of 
movies. Just look at the movies produced in the 1980s. And the other night, me and my two oldest sons had this opportunity that we don't often have. We had this opportunity, just us three, everybody else had kind of gone to bed. And I took advantage of this and said, I'm going to show you of all the great movies in the 1980s, I'm going to show you the greatest of them all tonight. Who, Hoosiers. I've watched Hoosiers literally a thousand times probably before every high school basketball game I watched it growing up. I watched it all the time. And so I take great pride in showing this to my sons and before the, they say the lines, of course, what do I do? I say them first. And every time I say them, I say, I hadn't seen this in 20-something years, but I still know it, son. And I just continue to show them how great this movie is. About halfway through, one of them's asleep, the other one's scrolling through his phone, and they just don't get it. But I want to wake them up at the end because I love the end. They win the championship, this small little school against all the big schools that are faster, bigger, and stronger than them. They win the championship, the Indiana State Championship. And in the end, it's got this great scene of this little boy, present day is what we think, in the same gym that they practice in and they played in, and he's shooting a basketball. And you have the music going in the background, and you have the camera kind of panning up behind him, taking us to the picture of the team photo of the state champs from Hickory High School. And you have that scene, and in the background you hear Coach Norman Dale. And Coach Norman Dale gives them this statement. He says, let's be very clear about what we're after. Team, team, team. Five players on the court performing together as one single unit. No one more important than any other. And then he says, I love you boys. I love that scene. Makes me tear up. I'm waking them up. They don't wake up. <laughs> they don't get it. And I'm thinking through how incredible that is. How is it that this little school, this little school in Hickory wins the state championship against all the big schools and the great ones who never have done this before, have never done this before? How is it that it's possible? And there you get the summary of it all. Team, team, team. No one is more significant than the other. I believe Norman Dale got that from the Bible. Deep in my heart. Probably not, but deep in my heart. We find this in the Apostle Paul. When we think about the idea of lostness, when we think about how big the world is, when we think about the great needs, how much can we do, how much can we accomplish, we can quickly be overwhelmed. But what Paul tells us in Philippians is that if we stay together, united in the gospel, there's not one thing through Jesus Christ that we can't accomplish. No one among us is more significant than the other. Here is the formula. Here is the formula. And that's exactly what Paul's doing here to the Philippians. He has already encouraged them by saying, look, yes, I'm in prison. Yes, things are difficult, but God is still on the move. And the word of God is not bound. And, and even though I'm chained to a guard, I'm sharing the gospel with that guard. And he's sharing the gospel beyond him. And every time they bring me a new guard, I'm sharing the gospel with them. The gospel has not stopped. But now all of the Roman army's hearing this thing. The whole imperial guard has heard this thing. But not only that... People are coming after me, sure, but still I am convinced that Jesus 
Jesus is everything, Paul says. For me to live is, to Christ, is Christ and to die is gain. He is worthy of it all. So you, you must live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what Paul wants here is he is desiring for his local church in Philippi to know these truths that he holds so precious. He wants them to know them deeply. And as he knows them and he wants them to see how they play out in the life of that congregation. And that verse 27, which I've already quoted here in chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says that's the key. This is what you need to be doing. Take everything you've heard from me and put this into application to live your life worthy of the gospel. And this takes work, Paul knows. It takes work. What Paul says is what's most important for you guys now is that you be united around who Christ is and what he's done for you. You be united together in what the work is. And if we're going to see the world changed and turned upside down in the name of Christ, then we must stay together. In fact, Paul knows this, this, this is exactly what Jesus prayed for with his disciples. On the night that he was betrayed in John 17, he's praying there in the garden. And he prays, Lord, make them one just as you and I are one, Lord. Make them one. Make them united so that the nations may know of who you are. In other words, the gospel going forth and people hearing is counting on the fact that the people of God remain united in Christ Jesus. This is no easy thing. In fact, if we were to all get into a room together and I say, all right, y'all get united about something, that would take us a while, right? Well, Apostle Paul knows this as well. In Ephesians, he says that you must be eager to maintain this unity that you have. He knows that if we were trying to attain this unity, we never would. But as believers, we have been given unity because all of us are found in Christ Jesus. And all of us as believers have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. So we have been given this unity. It has been granted to us in Christ. He has bonded us together through his blood. He has bonded us together through his Spirit. He has bonded us together through the mission that we have called to. He has granted us this. So now we must maintain what he has given us. And so Paul is saying, how can we maintain this unity so the world may know the gospel? And I believe his point here this morning is that our unity, the number one ingredient for our unity is humility. It's humility. In fact, whenever they asked Augustine, the great leader of the church in the West in the fourth century, give us a couple principles. What are the main principles of Christianity? Augustine's response was this. First, you must have humility. Second, you must have humility. And third, you must have humility. And I believe that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He says, considering everything that's happened, me being imprisoned, people even in chapter 1, preaching out of selfish ambition and conceit and rivalry, considering all that's happened, you need to know, you need to know that we are called to humility in light of these things. And our humility as believers comes from our abundance of grace. 
Oftentimes in this world, humility comes from lack. We may look at somebody who's humble because they have been humbled by something or some place or a lack of something. They don't have enough to satisfy. They don't have enough in life. So we consider them humble because they, ha- they have lack. They haven't attained much or received much. But that's not about us here as believers, Paul says. As believers, we have an abundance of blessing from God. In fact, you can't count all the blessings. You can try, but you can't count how much we have been blessed. And so our humility comes from an abundance. He says at the end of chapter 1, starting in chapter 2, so in light of all of this, so if... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul is not doubting whether the Philippians have experienced any of these things, any of these things. He knows they have. If you're a child of God, we know you have found encouragement in Christ. We know you understand what love is and find that comfort in his love. We know that you have affection and sympathy and the spirit of God is dwelling in you. If you're a child of Christ, we know these things. So Paul's if can be read in a similar way that we use if oftentimes, like the word since. Since you have these things, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have this comfort, here's how you should act. Now, let's think about these blessings for a minute. Look at what Paul says. Since you have encouragement in Christ, Paul has faced so much difficulty and so much struggle. He is in prison. We know last week we walked through how he got there through shipwrecks and arrests and appealing to Caesar, how he got to Rome and all kinds of struggles and difficulties. Paul's point here is that none of these happen in some way that they're meaningless. Everything that's happened to him has a purpose. And that's his great encouragement. Paul is saying, because of who Christ is and what he's done, then everything that happens to me, everything that happens to me has some purpose in it. Whether it's the shipwreck, whether it's the sorrow, whether it's the the pain, whatever suffering may come. He even tells them at the end of chapter 1 that suffering is going to be there, but that suffering has a purpose. And I find nothing more encouraging to us this morning that no matter what may happen to us, God is having a purpose in it to bring us unto his glory. And that's an encouragement to each and every one of us. And Paul says, if you are in Christ, you know that everything that's happening to you has a purpose. It has some reason behind it. It's not just just trivial. It's not just nonsense. It has a reason ultimately. So you find that encouragement in Christ. And not only do you have that encouragement, knowing that your life is in his hands. So whether you live or die, he says in chapter 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's encouragement for all of you in that. But not only that, he says, we find comfort from his love. I'm telling you what all of you are after. The great hope of everyone in this room is that you can be fully known and fully loved. Fully known and fully loved. And to be honest, that's a huge statement because not many of us want to be fully known. In fact, we would not even tell our spouses sometimes everything we're thinking, right? We don't even want people to know how dark we can be and how sinful we really are. We try to keep some veneer up to let people think we're okay, but deep down we struggle, we hurt, and we have dark and painful even thoughts. We know that, and we don't share those things at parties, and we don't even like to talk about them with our husbands and our wives because we're afraid. If they truly know who I am, they may not love me. They may not love me for who I am, but we know that this is exactly what Christ has done. For there is one who knows every one of our deep and darkest thoughts. 
There is one who knows our sinfulness and our wickedness. There is one who knows how really sad we truly are. There is one who knows those sins in every way. He knows everything about us, our thoughts, whether we lie down or whether we are standing up. Whatever the case is, he has searched us and he has known us. And guess what, friends? He still loves us. He's the one. He's the one who knows everything about you and still loves you. That's what we're looking for, right? And Paul says, here's the blessing of Christ. You can find encouragement in knowing that your life is in his hands and you are strengthened by him. And no matter what happens, it's it's him watching over you, caring for you, and bringing you to the day of completion just as he began it, as he says in chapter 1. But you can also know that he knows everything about you and he loves you deeply. Every little piece. And now you have participation in the Spirit as well. The same spirit that dwelled in Christ is the one that now dwells in us. The same spirit, as the scripture says, that raised him from the dead, that demonstrated his power to raise Jesus from the dead, is the same spirit that lives inside of each and every one of us as believers. The same one that can guide us and strengthen us. The same one that can can encourage us. This helper that comes along with us, the spirit has come. This one who is not a spirit of fear or timidity, as the scripture says, but of power and love and self-control. This spirit now dwells within us, and we find great joy joy in this as well. And we find affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. There's only one place where the Lord Jesus' heart is described in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For what? I am gentle and lowly at heart. And aren't we thankful? Aren't we thankful that he doesn't come to us as a judge who's looking to punish or hurt us or harm us, but he comes to us as a friend and a savior who's looking to save us and redeem us? He knows exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, at exactly the right time that we need it so we can trust him to give us, to care for us, to watch over us, or even keep things from us that may hurt us. We trust him in every way because he is the one who shows us all love. And his love is not just some uh, nebulous love that's out there. His love works in our lives through affection for us and care and sympathy for us even in our hard times and struggles. This is Christ for us. And since you have this, since you know your your encouragement you have in him, since you have this love that only he can give that loves you unconditionally, since you have the spirit dwelling in you that has the power of God to strengthen you and encourage you, since you have the affection and sympathy of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who does not break the bruised reed or, or knock out the smoking flask, since you have him, Here's how you must live. And all of those blessings, what what of those blessings have we earned? In what way have we earned God's affection? In what way have we earned his encouragement? In what way have we earned his sympathy or his care? You have all of this. You have all of these things on top of the fact that if you're a child of God, your sins have been forgiven. On top of the fact that not only your sin's been forgiven, but you have a promise of eternal life when you have Christ. You have all of these blessings, and none of this have we earned. I want to be very clear, and I want to be very sensitive, but I want to be very clear here, because I think, and sometimes the world twists things in such a way that confuses us. We find our worth because we've been created in the image of God. We find our worth because we're made in his image for his glory. That's where we find our worth. And that's what we should esteem in ourselves. 
Oftentimes this world tries to push us towards this idea of self-esteem. And I want you to know you are priceless. Far more than anything the world can put a price tag on, you are priceless. But the key here is that if we are esteeming ourselves, we will never find enough. You esteem yourself if you can earn your way into heaven. You esteem yourself if you can earn God's encouragement and his blessing. You esteem yourself if you can earn Christ by what you do or how you act. You by all means esteem yourself. But what we as believers seek after is not self-esteem but Christ-esteem. And what we know is our worth is found in the fact that our Savior Jesus Christ left heaven to come to earth to take on flesh and die in our place. That's what we esteem and that's what we glorify. That's the one we look to, not ourselves. And Paul is saying, look at all the blessings of God. You didn't earn any of this. You didn't figure all this out on your own. You didn't solve any puzzle. You didn't solve any rizzle, rizzle, puzzle, whichever one you want to solve. (laughs) Y'all love that stuff. I'm glad y'all paying attention. For rizzle, you didn't solve anything. God has come to you through grace. And he has granted these things through his love and grace for your life. Such grace brings such great responsibility. Wonderful responsibility, Paul says. Because of who God is, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't exalt yourself. Exalt Christ. Don't raise this up. The privileges of grace lead to the obedience of faith. Paul always makes this clear. He's not calling us to obedience without telling us what God has already done through us in Christ. Our call to obedience is built upon the foundation of God's grace and mercy and blessings to our life, right? They've already been granted. So first he says, seek the joy of others. Complete my joy. In this nice little twist, Paul says, complete my joy. The question had come up in chapter 1 about motives. What about our motives, right? Paul says some are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely but thinking of to inflict me. Their motive was to harm and selfish ambition. That's what they were after. And so Paul says some of them are doing that, but check your own motives. And if your motives are for selfish gain, then you must realize that they bring no honor to God in any way, no matter what the outcome is. I'm fine if you preach the gospel, but notice that if your motives in preaching the gospel are out of selfishness and rivalry or conceit, you bring no honor to God and receive no glory for it. But what he says is this, because of who God is and what he's done for us then, you come at life without selfish ambition, without conceit. And if you're going to come without selfish ambition, without conceit, then you have stopped worrying about what you can get. You've stopped worrying about where you can be and what you can achieve for yourself, and you start worrying about others. And Paul says, complete my joy. Consider me even. Complete my joy. Look to me and don't worry about yourself. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is calling them to a major gospel lifestyle shift. And I believe that this is the secret sauce to genuine united Christian fellowship. This is what it means here for us as believers to join together is that we join together understanding the blessing of God in our life, looking to his grace and his mercy, knowing that we have not earned it, we don't deserve it, but he has been good to us. So we come as ones who have been incredibly blessed. Therefore, we don't look out for our own selfishness. God has already cared for that. We don't look out in our own conceit. We recognize the gifts and talents God has given us are all gifts from him anyway, so they all go black to his glory. 
I'm not promoting me. We're not promoting we. We're promoting Christ in all of these things, Paul says. And this becomes the key to what it means to be a family together. Humble yourselves, recognizing that God is the one who receives all the glory. We have a hard time. I know our world especially, and it creeps into us as a church sometimes, have a hard time embracing humility. But the reason is because oftentimes what the world desires is far below what we have as believers. And so they're seeing things that they can go out there and grab, but they're not as great as what we have, right? So they're looking at these things that the world treasures, from material things to relational things, whatever they may be, they're looking to the worldly treasures. But the scripture says those worldly treasures are passing away and they're finite. And if you see them as finite, you think you got to grab them and get them before anybody else does. And so you promote yourself and you grab and you get and you go get all those things before anybody else gets it. Because if you don't get yours, nobody's going to be looking out for you. And that's what the world is promoting. But all of that stuff you're grabbing and going after is fading away and dying. But our treasure, our treasure's in heaven. And there is enough for all of us. In fact, we all get the same inheritance, Christ Jesus. We all get the same glory that he has bestowed upon us through himself. We all get that. There is plenty. It's not running out. It's not being taxed. But that mercy and grace is new every single day. It's enough. So we don't live our life trying to promote ourselves to get what is fading and passing away. We hold fast to what is sure, unfading and undefiled, waiting for us in heaven, knowing that it's not ultimately us that holds it, but it's Christ Jesus that holds it for us. I don't have to promote Josh Powell because Christ Jesus has already promoted me to his son and already made me his child. And so therefore, God, as making me a part of his family, has an inheritance for me that I don't have to grab for, I don't have to seek to gain. He's already got it waiting. So my job now, as a good son of our Savior, uh, of our Lord and Father, Jesus Christ, uh, as that, my job now is just to glorify him. Just to honor him. The world treasures things that are fading away, but our treasure's in heaven. Now, Where can Paul find such an example of this? He doesn't point them to look to himself here. He knows and recognizes, don't look at me. He says, look to Christ. You think that this is too hard. Consider others greater than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves. He tells us at the end of verse 2 to being full accord of one mind. Now he's going to define what that mind is. Have this mind amongst yourselves. And then here in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we're going to look at a passage ultimately that, that has gained great interest through scholars throughout the century. It's an early Christian hymn that we believe was sung during church and worship services in this first century. And here he's saying, have this mind among yourselves. Let me remind you of what you sing. Just as we oftentimes quote songs in our sermons in worship, let me remind you of what you sing. Develop this mindset in your fellowship, which you find in the mind of Christ and what he did for us. And what did the Lord do for us? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. It tells us that he is God, but he did not grasp or guard his rights as son jealously. He gave them up. As the son of God and one who is in full standing, complete deity, he could have held on to those rights and claimed those things. But he did not grasp them. He simply let them go so that he could come to save and redeem his people. 
He did not make the demands that he had every right to make, but he let go of them so that he can come. And how did he do this? He said, he did this by not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And as Jesus came to earth, he did not take the form of a king. He did not take the form of a ruler. He did not come on his horse showing that he would conquer. He came as a servant. He came as a servant, humbling himself to that place. He did not lose all of his divine power. Obviously, we see him acting as only God can act in the Gospels, but he did. He did not make any claim on them so as to not do what God had called him to do. He humbled himself. He took on flesh, and he became a servant here, the Scripture says. And then a contrast ensues. Who, this Jesus who comes, who he is by nature God, and is identity here then though is humbling himself to redeem his people yes he even comes to be a part of his people being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death he's born in the likeness of men born as one of us to come down to save us and redeem us he humbled himself to this place and how far did he take this humbling or this humility how far was he willing to go in condescending himself or considering others greater than himself? How far was he willing to go? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, Paul adds. Christ Jesus humbled himself, leaving heaven to come to earth, taking on flesh to become one of us so that he may redeem us. He humbled himself not to come as a king or claim any rights of himself, but he gave them all up so that he could save us from our sins, so that he could identify with us. And he, as Hebrew says, in every way, he humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. The cross itself is the most gruesome and humbling of deaths. And why is this necessary? It's necessary because on that cross, what Jesus did was he took the curse that came to the earth because of sin. He took that curse and he reversed it as Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But now Jesus takes the curse that came because of sin and he reverses the curse and everything that was wrong, he seeks to make it right again. And there he dies. He dies the most humiliating of deaths so that he could redeem his people. He considered others greater than himself. When he had every right to claim of himself all that went with his title and his role, he considered others greater than himself. And this, Paul says, must be your mindset as well. You must consider others greater. You must not, you must not come as consumers, but must come as one who is humbling himself. The exaltation of Jesus follows. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Is that the end of the story? Of course not. Therefore, this connection, since Christ Jesus has humbled himself, even death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him. The one who once died is the one who now reigns. The one who once humbled himself is the one who now is exalted. You remember as the prophets say this in Isaiah 53, that passage that tells us about the death of Christ and what it means to us, the suffering servant, the one who would take our sins upon himself and we were, he, uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. But that whole passage begins with this statement. Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up. And how will he be high and lifted up? By humbling himself to redeem himself 
and to save his people. This is what we have heard. This is what we have seen, Paul says. And in this, then Christ becomes everything. What Paul is saying to the Philippians is there is no other name. This is the name that is above every name. Everything you're longing for can be found here. You're looking for joy. It's only in this name. It's above every other name. It's in Jesus. You're looking for happiness. It's only here in this one. It's in Jesus. You're looking for satisfaction. It's only here. He humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. Now he is exalted so that he is the name above every name. And if you are looking for hope, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for joy, it's the there because his name is above them all. That's where you find it. You find it in him. Christ becomes everything. And as the old preacher says, whenever we preach, that becomes our our whole desire. We're serving up a, a, a meal for you in the pulpit. We're serving up a meal. And he would always say, I heard I can hear him saying now, as growing up with him, that what we're offering up is a Jesus sandwich. He's the bread, the meat, and all the fixings. It's Christ. There's nothing else for us to offer. There's nothing else for us to give. There's nowhere else for you to find hope. There's nowhere else for you to find salvation. There's nowhere else for you to find your sins forgiven. It is Christ. Paul says there is no other name. And at his name, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. It's at his death that he saves us. It's at his exaltation that he keeps us. Every knee will bow. What's true here, what's true here is this fact, that every knee will bow, either willingly or unwillingly. You're going to have to acknowledge he is Lord. In the end, you'll see it, you'll know it, there's no denying it, you must acknowledge it. My prayer is is that we can preach Christ, we can sing Christ, we can offer up Christ in such a way that you can see him on his throne, you can understand his glory, you can know him as your own, and today, even today, you can bow before him as Lord and Savior. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Will it be willingly or unwillingly? Today, the choice is at your hands. Will you bow before him and confess it now? Will you bow before him and confess it now so as not to be forced to later? Because now is the offer. Here is the hope. Today is the urgency. Christ Jesus is available to us all. The one who humbled himself to death, even death on the cross, who's raised to life and now seated at the right hand of the Father. And there is no other place, no other name where which you can find salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good Thank you for our time together, God, this morning to proclaim it. God, help us today to glorify you in every way. God, if there's some today here that do not know you, they haven't already willingly bowed their knee and worshiped you as King and Savior and Lord, help them to do that now. Help them to join together with us as a body, humbly coming in to perform all of the great and glorious privileges we have to perform as your people working together, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Help us, Father, to proclaim Jesus Christ in every way as Lord and Savior. 
and for everyone in this room within the sound of my voice to confess that truth today. Jesus is Lord. All of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be standing here at the front if you want to confess Christ as Lord. Maybe today for the first time, I'm standing here to wait. We'd love to speak with you about it. If you want to join in with us in the life of our church, we're excited about what's going on and what God's doing, working together, striving together for the gospel. Let's stand together.